You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. There are some things in this collection of verses that if we, um, uh, if we were reading through it, we might go, I've definitely got a question about that. And, and my guess is that we're not going to get to those questions today, in part because what is happening over, uh, as a whole in this collection of verses that we've read this morning, 12 to 34, um, has, has an underlying point that is far too significant for us to be weighed down by some of, the, some of the questions about what it means to be baptized for the dead, for instance. And so if you have questions about that, we can talk about that at another time, another place. I'd love to have coffee with you or whatever, um, and, and we'll, we'll talk. But let's jump into what Paul is, in fact, trying to help us understand this morning, starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Because if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So Paul makes it very clear, this issue is of first importance, not only to me as someone who is preaching and delivering this message to you about the resurrected Jesus, it's also vital to your faith. Your faith, if it is not placed in a resurrected Jesus, is in vain. There are things that are accomplished by the bodily resurrection of Jesus that if the bodily resurrection of Jesus is not true, makes your faith worthless. He goes on to say, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. So Paul says, listen, what you are believing right now, having received me as a teacher, you're you're saying that what I've delivered to you, this testimony about a resurrected Jesus, you, you are in essence saying that I have misrepresented God. That there is no resurrection in spite of the fact that in my apostolic authority, in the, in the planting and in the helping of the Corinthian church, I've, I've somehow gone astray. Keep reading. He says this, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, he says it again, your faith is futile. And here's the clue as to why. Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. I don't know about you, but that is a big deal. Your faith is in vain. If we don't believe the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, it means that we are still in our sins, is what Paul says. Now, why is that? Well, the Bible Bible makes it pretty clear that it's in the death of Jesus. We have a Savior, not not only who who died for us, but who died in our place, right? Have you heard of Jesus in that way, that Jesus was a substitute? He died in our place, not just for us? Well, Paul makes that point clearly throughout many of his letters, but he says that, that Jesus died in our place, so he died a bodily death, and in essence, what is proclaimed by the bodily resurrection of Jesus is that that payment was satisfactory. That the proverbial check cleared, right? That the the transaction was authorized, in a sense. And so Paul goes on to say, listen, if you don't have the receipt, 
then you're still in your sins. To disbelieve the resurrection is in essence to say that there's still a balance to be paid with regards to your sins. And the only responsible party left is you. And so we're back to our initial predicament, are we not? Which is that we have a record of sin, a record of debt that we cannot, by our own abilities, cancel or pay for. And no matter how much we may feel like we've paid back or gained back in a good work or two, there are infinite other bad works or good works that we have left undone that continue to add to that debt. And so Paul says, listen, if there's no resurrection, then you're still in that cycle. You're still in that place. And that is the very definition of the word futile that Paul uses there. But not only that, keep reading. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And so Paul expands on the point that he said in verse 19, not only if Christ has not been raised, are we still in our sins. That's, that's significant enough as it is. That, in my mind, should be enough for us this morning as it is. But Paul continues and he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so Paul says, listen, to disbelieve the resurrection not only has personal and corporate implications with regards to your sin and whether it's or not it's been paid for, it also has implications for your future reality beyond this life. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then we all die according to Adam's death rather than living according to Christ's resurrection. He goes on to say that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's that, he's that first fruit that ripened on the tree that, that is the sign that soon and very soon the rest of the tree will be ripe for enjoyment. He's that first harvest that signals that, that this year is going to be a good year. The harvest is coming, right? Jesus himself uses some language like that. Paul says, listen, just as Christ was raised as the first fruit, the first fruit to ripen on the vine, so also we, those of us who have called upon Christ for the sake of salvation, we also will be raised. That what Christ experienced in the bodily resurrection was not something that would be limited to Him forever. It is something that all of his people will experience in their turn. Right? That's what he says in verse 23. But each in his order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now, I don't know that you guys think about this much, but um, maybe we should. Like, have you guys ever, have you ever thought about that? 
Like, I think a lot of times when we think about death, we think of it very ethereally. We think about it very spiritually, right? Like, there's a soul that sort of floats off somewhere, and we don't really know what happens. Well, Paul makes it very clear what happens here. That this body, this body that, that we inhabit right now, that in some way, some shape, some form, it will be resurrected from the dead. I put my father in the ground just a couple of weeks ago. And it was exceedingly comforting to think that this is true. I looked at a dead body and the temptation in that moment for, for all of us, especially those of us who don't know Jesus, is to think, well, that's it. Right, the curtain's closed. Show's over. Turn out the lights. Paul says, oh no. Oh no, no, no. Christ is the first fruits. And at his coming, that body, in some way, some shape, some form, in some glorious and wonderful way, will breathe again. Our souls will be reunited with our transformed physical bodies and brought back to life from the dead. That is the hope that we forfeit when we give up the bodily resurrection of Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. Paul wrote elsewhere in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. What did he say? He says this, Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of what? Our bodies. Our bodies are not going to be thrown away. They're going to be renewed, restored, revitalized, redeemed. And so it's not only that if we disbelieve the res resurrection, we, we give up the payment for our sins. We also give up our future hope. We're stuck in Adam instead of being transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son of God. Which is why Paul goes on to say this in verse 24. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he, that is Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. For God the Father has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that God the Father is accepted who put all things in subjection under Jesus. It's more helpful to read it that way, right? When all things are subjected to Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subjected to God the Father who put all things in subjection under Jesus, that God, Father, Son, and Spirit may be all in all. So Paul essentially goes on to say that, listen, there's implications about this for you personally. There's implications about this for your eternal future. But there's also implications for this time and place right now. 
if Christ has not been raised, then just like what Paul said earlier, our only hope is in what this world has to offer, right? It's in the every rule. It's in the every authority. It's in the powers of our day, right? Like if we don't, if we don't have hope in something that transcends those authorities, those powers, then we only have hope in those authorities and powers. That's all that's left, right? But Christ has been raised. So, at the end of all things, the lights don't turn out, the curtain doesn't close. On the contrary, at the end, Christ comes and He delivers His comprehensive kingdom to the Father after having destroyed every rule, every authority, every power, including death itself. Now, this is significant, and this is where we have to know and we have to understand what has been happening at Corinth this whole time. Because this is why this truth in particular is of first importance, not only to Paul generally, but to the Corinthians specifically. If you've been with us throughout this series, then um, what you'll probably recall is that most of the tension most of the struggle, most of the difficulty, most of the relational turmoil that is happening in Corinth is primarily because there are people in the church who are, by the systems and social structures of power in the world, treating their brothers and sisters who also are Christians as less than. That's what's happening. They're jockeying for social power and position. By what? Uh, Chapter 3, striving to be aligned with the right teachers. Chapter 5, suing one another. Uh, chapter 7, looking to escape their social class through marriage. Chapters 8 through 10, participating in pagan food rituals that were often a sign of your social class and status. Flaunting their wealth at the Lord's Supper, bringing a huge Lord's Supper for themselves and for their family while those who were poor had nothing. Or even in the most recent chapters, they're talking over each other in the gathering. Who can be the most wise? Who's the most prophetic? Who's the most gifted? Who can speak the most clearly in tongues, right? All of those things have set them against one another. And all of them at their core are a jockeying, right? For position, for power, for authority, not only within the church, but even within the culture at large, which is why there's this, this mix of ideas, right? Which is why these Corinthians are willing to say, yeah, like we believe in the resurrected Jesus, sort of. The body thing, the resurrected body thing makes us look weird. So we'll just say that it's a spiritual resurrection and that somehow God has worked this, this thing, you know, in this way. Paul says, absolutely not. Which is why Paul here makes it very clear that every earthly socio-political means of power and or hope will be ultimately destroyed. And so it would make sense for the Corinthians, not like it would make logical sense for the Corinthians to put their hope in the one who will destroy them. He's saying, listen, Jesus is over all of this. 
Corinth comes, Corinth goes, Jesus and his kingdom remain. They're the only thing that stands in the end. And so he's inviting them by the truth of the resurrection to put their hope outside of their socio-political processes, outside of all of these structures and things that were part of being Roman, part of being Corinthian, and being named primarily, firstly, by their allegiance to Christ and His eternal kingdom. So listen, as, as we close, let me step on some toes. I think so much of what Paul is addressing in this text is applicable, applicable to our very specific current situation. Corinth was a wealthy outpost of the Roman Empire. And Corinth and the church in Corinth experienced the bounty of being part of the greatest empire on the planet at the time. The temptation for these Corinthian Christians was to put their hope in Roman social and political systems. After all, it was working pretty well for Rome at the time. But that is exactly what Paul is counseling against here. And so, brothers and sisters, the reality is that as we head to the polls this week, I want for us to admit want for us to admit that both on the right and on the left, we are often looking for hope in the results of the political process. Can we admit that? And so listen, it doesn't matter who loses or wins. One side on Tuesday is going to be overly joyful. Right? Some of you will cheer more when your candidate wins than you did during worship this morning. And one side is going to be overly despairing. Some of you will cry more when your candidate loses than when you confessed your sins this morning. So listen, I'm not saying you shouldn't vote. Quite the contrary. I think you should vote and I think you should engage the political process. It is a wonderful, important, and beautiful, albeit imperfect, thing that we have here in America. But I want you to vote as Christians. I want you to vote as Christians. And I don't mean that in regard to any specific political issues. Listen, let's just be very honest this morning. There are moral strengths and weaknesses to both sides. And if you can't acknowledge that, I'm worried. What I mean when I say I want us to vote as Christians is this. I want us to vote with two things in mind. Number one, vote with love for your neighbor. Here's what I mean by that. We, we should not be our primary concern in the voting booth. We can certainly be a concern, but not the primary one. Listen, we've been called by God to love Him and to love our neighbor, and that call does not stop when we enter the voting booth. 
Philippians chapter 2 encourages us in light of Christ to, to what? Do nothing, no thing. Do, like, do I need to translate that anymore for you? Do no thing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. And listen, I think points can be made Again, for both sides, about loving your neighbor and what's best and what's not. Like, we can have that conversation. We can let our spirit-given conscience guide us, right? The Bible does not say vote any particular party, 2018, midterm elections, United States. It doesn't say that. Okay, so can we, like, vote love for your neighbor as best you can according to your conscience. Get outside of yourself. And think about them. And the second thing is this. Vote with a sober mind and a peaceful heart. We already know what happens in the end, brothers and sisters. Paul literally just said it. Then comes the end. What happens? Jesus submits everything to himself. Period. End of story. So listen, America comes, America goes, Russia comes, Russia goes, but the kingdom of God and its king will stand forever. We are citizens of that kingdom, is what Paul says. When we called upon the name of Christ for salvation, when we believe in his bodily resurrection as proof of his sufficient payment for our sins on our behalf, we are engrafted into that kingdom, that eternal kingdom. And so what happens here, listen, don't hear me wrong. What happens here is important. It is just not ultimate. To have a sober mind is to be engaged thoughtfully without setting our hope on the process. To have a peaceful heart is to have given our anxieties over to the Lord, trusting that His will cannot and will not be thwarted ever. Listen, I'm not, saying we, I'm not saying we can't be anxious about this. I'm just saying, what, what does the Bible tell us to do with our anxieties? It tells them to cast them upon Him, doesn't it? And what happens when we do that? Well, let's just read it. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, let your sober-mindedness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. He's coming soon. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And guess what? The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts, not maybe, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So brothers and sisters, listen, there's a whole lot more to be said about this passage, but I could not look Tuesday in the face and not say these things. It's utterly implicit in the text. This is where I want to leave us. 
what would it look like if Christians in America's hope was so set on Christ and our future resurrection with Him that we walked into the political process with a peace that transcends our fellow Americans' understanding? Like, could you imagine that? Think for a moment of what kind of hope that would betray to the world around us. Think of the questions people would have if we could soberly, peacefully, seriously engage the process, but find our hope located elsewhere, untouched, unscarred, come Wednesday morning. Worshipful, trusting in the knowledge of a sovereign and loving and faithful and glorious and powerful and majestic God of the universe who is even now subjecting all of it to Christ's own feet. What would that look like? I tell you what, headlines about evangelicals would change. The reality is that that has not been our MO historically. But it can be starting Tuesday. Let's pray to that end. Father, thank you for this morning. Again, God, thank you for the opportunity to be gathered together. Thank you, Lord, for the glorious truth of the resurrection. Lord, may we never be tempted to deny it. May we never be tempted to soften it. Lord, may we celebrate. May we recognize that every week we gather, we celebrate a bodily resurrected Savior who is even now in heaven, in human form, as proof that one day we will join him there in this self-same form. Glorified, restored, renewed, transformed in wonderful and glorious ways, but there with him in an age to come. And Lord, would that be a hope? Would that be a truth? Would that be a wonder, Lord, that informs all of our living? May it inform, Lord, how we speak. May it inform how we think. May it inform how we exercise our rights to vote. May it inform the way we love other people. May it inform the way we see what this world has to offer us. Because, Lord, it is in this hope, it is in this truth that no matter how great things are going or no matter how horrible things are going, We know that a steady course is being charted to glory for us by your spirit. So, Lord, let us not this morning presume to know all things. In fact, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to trust in you and to lean not on our own understanding. May we be a people who in all our ways acknowledge you knowing that you will set our path straight. Your church and your people and your kingdom will not ever be overcome by any foe. And we find rest and glory and hope 
peace in that reality this morning. May we walk out of here with even the physical posture of those who know that to be true. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.